1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Chris Wade, author of the book, The Films of James Woods. The book was published in 2022 by Wisdom Twins Books. Drawing on interviews with Woods himself, as well as many others who interacted with him over his career, Chris presents great details about the actor and his roles. We talk about how he was able to get Woods to participate and what other sources he used to write his book. Welcome Chris Wade. Hi Chris. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining me. You are actually in the UK, and I am in the United States. And I've interviewed a lot of folks all over the world. My f- longest distance one I've ever done was somebody in New Zealand, well, and that's like a 16-hour difference time difference for me. But believe it or not, depending on the timing, we can still work things things out. It's your afternoon, yeah. in my morning, so it Indeed. works fine. So let's. Let's talk about Chris Wade. We're obviously talking about your book, The Films of James Woods, but you're a prolific writer. I think I can safely use that word based on looking at all the books you've published and written. But then you also have, um, you know, not just film, but also music. So let's talk a little bit about your background. Where... You know, obviously, because you're you're very all over the place as far as, I mean, you actually have made some film, um, written about film, music, and so on. So let's talk a little bit about your background. Where did you, you know, where, what led you into the arts?
0: Well, I mean, I've always been a film buff, and I've always been obsessed with music, and I started playing the guitar, started teaching myself when I was around seven or eight playing along to Black Sabbath and things like that. So I've always been really interested in making music. And then film became an obsession quite early on. And uh, But I never really thought I was going, going to... I mean, I always wanted to do something to do with music books because I'm, I'm a big book reader as well, big obsessive book reader. And I always wanted to do something in that area. But in the 90s, it's you know pre-internet. And when I were a kid, it was just, you didn't really think of that kind of having a career or doing things that you've really enjoyed, unless there were a hobby on the side. So I think it's around 2008, I was working in a shop, in a stationery shop, actually, an ideal place to have a, have a free pen at hand. I just started like writing down ideas for a story. And um, I ended up losing that job, and it timed, coincided perfectly with me having this idea of developing something, something extra that I wanted to do that, that I was passionate about. So I started writing um, like a free arts magazine online a pdf called hound dog which was focused on film and music and i used to interview people for it you know like um i think of people you might know members of the velvet underground and people like that and all kinds of things really and then i wrote this story that the, the one that I started in the shop and it, and it was called um cutie and the surfer guy kind of a surreal adventure well it's a real story like a surreal psychological type thing and i published that myself the first thing i ever published i did because i never thought of ever sending any work to anybody i just thought i don't really see the point in somebody else publishing it because i didn't look at it as a as a business or a money making thing i thought i've got things to express or things i want to do so i'm going to start you know releasing things myself and um i, I published it as a book and then i did it as I, I asked a comedian who was quite well known well it was very well known in england called rick Mail, who in america i think he's probably known for the young ones and Maybe even a film called Drop Dead Fred. But um, in England, he was a massive icon of comedy. And I asked him off the cuff, I asked his agent, I said, would he be able to do an audiobook of this story? I didn't even have enough money to to pay him at the time. It was just like a, a spur of the moment thing. And they said, well, we'll give it to him and he'll have a read and see what he says. But, and to my utter astonishment, he said he really wanted to do it and he wasn't really bothered about being paid up front. We just, so we went and did it, recorded it in London. And then I set up the company Wisdom Twins. Then that's the thing that really got it going. So there was like a case of well, if I if I did that, I can do anything. So I released that as a download and a, and a CD, and then I did a book for a guy called Hugh Cornwell, who was in a band called The Stranglers. Um, he, he did a tour, and I, I did a book for his tour that I released myself, and then it just kind of snowballed, and I kept, I kept on doing whatever tickled my fancy, really. And then in 2012, that's when I realised that I was missing music. I wanted to start really writing songs and recording, and I kind of I got a simple setup at home, started with acoustic stuff, started writing songs. And I released my first one in 2012, and it did it did a lot better than I thought it would do, and people were really interested. So like three releases a year, EPs or albums, or sometimes like a a project that combines the music with with my artwork or photographs. And it's got that's got like a steady cult following. So that's my real passionate outlet where I get out, you know, my emotions, or well, not in a teenage kind of way, but you know what I mean, like things I'm thinking about, things I'm expressing. And then as I'm a complete film geek if you can't record all the time my my thinking was if I write about films if I watch films and write about films people might be interested in reading my thoughts on them I'm not a critic in any sense because I don't like film criticism and I don't really don't really like academic film books either I mean some of them are good but I just think if you're a film fan and you're a film enthusiast why not put these opinions down in a book and that's kind of started 10 years ago as well so in the past 10 years things have just kept going, going, going. And I've just, you know, there's been ups and downs where I've been thinking, oh, should I be doing this? Is it really? And then it's just got better and better. And basically it's just having these interests in all these different fields. And I'm just thinking, right now, why don't I try writing about this? And I start writing and I go, it's working. Then I'll say, oh, why don't I try and contact so-and-so? And it just seems to work out because I think none of it's done for the money. Okay, it's my living, but it's not, that's only by a coincidence that I've happened to make it I put so much time into it that it's become a job, inverted commas, that never feels like a job. It's like a dream job, really. So it's just combining all them things, music, uh, books, documentaries that I do sometimes, um, a little bit of fiction for fun, and then film documentaries and uh, some art films that I sometimes do, which are like black surreal comedies. So, yeah, that's that's basically it. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff, but when you think that I, I sometimes work 10... hours a day on things it's kind of when people say it's quick to get a book done in two months for me it's not felt quick at all it's like a lot of continuous work you know it's not like on an evening i'll spend a couple of hours doing it it's like i will do it nine till five until my daughter comes home from school and so it's like a working day really but it's just all the things i'm passionate about so yeah that's basically it well
1: that's the thing if you can do something you like and you can actually earn a living at it that's double doubly good so that's that's great yeah. where did when did film become important to you in your life i mean obviously for all the books and interests you've shown in in film um where did uh, that start with you when you were young
0: well i remember my first ever film memory is at the cinema my um my grandma and her husband used to run a cinema where i live in leeds in yorkshire know they took me to see Roger Rabbit, <laughs> Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, I think I were about three or four, or probably four. And I remember like sitting, because he used to do the projecting as well, so, but we had the we had the room to ourselves. So I was sat in this little cinema watching Roger Rabbit. I remember seeing Ghostbusters 2 because I was totally obsessed with the Ghostbusters films as a kid. That's like 1990 or something. And then it, it started, like, I'd say it were around 1997 and 8. Um, my dad bought me um, a Telly TV, video, recorder, combi from my bedroom. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is quite a cool thing, you know, videos. So I got some uh, Memorex, you know, blank tapes. And I used started taping films off the TV just out of curiosity. And Film Forward started in, in the UK and they were showing a channel, as uh, Channel Four, I think, or Film Four. Later on, they'd show classic films or new films or foreign films. So I started taping. I remember the first film that I taped that really kind of, grabbed hold of me was Taxi Driver, Man's Cross Age. That was like, whoa. Because I think I were like 13 or 14. I shouldn't have been watching it really, but you get into an age there as a teenager where a film like Taxi Driver about a, an outsider and an anti-hero was kind of feeling isolated. It's kind of the perfect age really to get into a film like that. But I didn't like relate to to Travis Bickle. I didn't want to do what he'd done, but you know, it was a film that kind of, oh, this is speaking to me in some kind of weird way and then uh, that was a really key one and then Casino funnily enough it, it premiered on UK TV it must be around the same time around 98 and me and my friend Sean we both taped it we said oh you're t- you taping that De Niro film tonight at a Casino and um, I remember we both watched it because we it were on too late and we had school so we watched it the next day and we were both talking about it. oh my god did you see it oh like, great and we started swapping lines all the time and it became our like little secret film but at the same time my dad is a massive film buff as well and when I was young he used to used to watch a lot of Woody Allen films and I used to collect films, my dad. So I remember like we used to go to my dad's house, me and my sister and we'd watch a Woody Allen film on a night. And then we'd watch something a bit weirder, like uh, David Lynch or Razorhead or, (laughs) when we got a little bit older, like video, well, not that much older video drum, you know, Cronenberg with James Woods. And, um, blue velvet and it just got, it just got deeper and deeper and over the years i've got more interested in independent films and european films i don't know what it is about films it's just i like blockbusters and I like as well sometimes you know for fun but when the film's about proper human dramas that teach you about you know what it is to be human and kind of complex psychological things and they kind of just you get so wrapped up in them that you go oh my god this, this is touching me in some kind of way like a book does you know like a novel. I, f- I think f- good films are as good as novels. Whereas there's different types, of popcorn films and fun films. But I think a real, you know, like real cinema is as important as literature. I feel so. Yeah, I mean, so my love of film, like a lot of people's, it's not. It's not like I'm unique or anything. It's just um, I just write my opinions down on my love of cinema. Like I never, I never write things. I've never been commissioned to write anything. I've I've been asked, but I've always turned it down because I prefer to write about something that's from the heart and it's something that I always release it myself through wisdom twins as well. So that's just the way I do it. And film's always been there. You know, it's always been this important thing to me because it's it's an escape as well when you when you're younger. If things are always going so well as a teenager or whatever, cinema was like, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go upstairs and I'll see what what did I tape last night? Um I'll, I'll watch that tonight and get some sweets and <laughs> candy or whatever you call it, and just like escape into film. So it's always been like that, really. It's funny. It sounds like you,
1: you were born at the right time. I guess is the best way to put it. The uh, yeah, yeah. the advent of home video. I know here in the states, um, I had my we had our first video recorder around eighty two. Yeah. And um, we didn't have cable yet at that point because it wasn't in our area. But soon after that, I got cable and I sort of did some of the same similar things. Yeah. <laughs> I started recording movies off yeah. of the cable stations and watching them. And of course, we were still in the period where even though home video had started, it still was pretty small. Yeah. And so you depended a lot on whatever you could get off of television. Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out in your story that being able to find films that uh you never you'd heard about but never seen and then of course that took off even more once the home video revolution hit and you could actually rent movies and and uh here in the states the libraries began stocking them too so yeah It became easier and easier to see some of these films that we'd heard about when I was younger. If it didn't show up on television or if it didn't show up on a revival in a theater, you had no way of seeing the film. Yeah, exactly. And, of course, television at the time was still, you know, until we got some of the cable channels like HBO and such, they were always editing them so you sort of had to depend on however you could get them so yeah, yeah. I, I, I completely relate to your um <laughs> to your story yeah so where did when did woods first appear on your radar uh, obviously you've written about a lot of people but we're talking about your book on james woods so when did he when did you first see a film and say Oh yeah, that's James Woods. So, you know, or, or well, when did when did that become somebody who you uh noted?
0: Well I always remember, you know, like when you're very young, you, you know act I always knew actors because my dad were a film buff anyway. And you kind of naturally I always knew James Woods as well, you know, like I always knew Pacino, De Niro, Nicholson, all the great guys, and I always knew by the faces and I'd seen little bits when I was a kid. But the fir- I think the first one that I really that really took hold of me was Once Upon a Time in America. Um, tape, that's one, one that we got taped off the TV, and I didn't know that only part because it's such a long film. They showed it twice. They showed the fat part one on one Friday, and part two on the next Friday. So I taped the first part, and I was getting really into it. And then it said, uh, "Tune in next week for part two. And I'm, oh no, oh god! So I had to wait another week for this for second part. So that was the first time when I thought, God, he's he's as good as De Niro. He's kind of he's just got this presence. But I'd, and then I saw. Casino, when he plays the pimp, Leicester Diamond, that were, that were around the same time. So, my two favorite films in that time both had James Wood in them, which is pretty cool. And then, Video Drum, I remember seeing very clearly because I remember my dad put it on, maybe fast forwarding a few little bits and just saw him with his hand inside his stomach. I'm like, oh, this guy does some unusual things. And then, um, a film and then the films like Any Given Sunday, uh, I remember renting that in like 2000 or something like that because it was one of Oliver Stone's. And Nixon, and Nixon as well. Nixon's one that I remember really because I taped that off, off TV, and it just kind of snowballed. So I've always known he's he's a great actor. And then I was doing a little mini book about Once Upon a Time in America about two years ago, and um, I emailed I emailed some people and interviewed some some supporting cast members and some people to do with the like even the special effects guy and the guy who designed the post. So I just got little interviews with people just to add to the book. And then I asked James Woods' um, agent or assist, PR agent and said, why would he be interested in being interviewed for this book? And I didn't expect to reply because, to me, it's at that point, people on that level of, you know, legendary film level, I just thought that I would hear back. And they said, oh, he's looking forward to this because it's his favorite, one of his favourite films he's ever done. So they gave me his email and we arranged an interview. Uh, and it wasn't really an interview. That's the thing. It was just a talk like this. It was like a really relaxed talk. And he just instantly started telling me these stories about Once Upon a time, America, about Sergio Leone and Robert De Niro and how he approached the role. And it was like, God, amazing. It was like pinch me, because that's the the role. James Woods' max in that work is a, a kind of a performance that always haunted me since I was a kid. So to hear him tell me all these memories about it and to talking about Ennio Morricone and it was just, oh my. So we did that, and he said, "Oh, stay in touch." And I didn't really—I didn't. I wasn't sure if it meant it because I don't know if he would just being polite. So, I started emailing him, and I sent him the the draft of the article with the interview, and he really liked it. You know, he said it moved him to tears. And um, so I put that in the book, and then I did a, a little piece about him for a cult a film magazine I do called Scenes. I did a little article about him for that, and he really, he was really happy with that. And he said, "Oh, great, thanks," and he shared it on his on his Twitter, and he really, he's been really supportive. Then one day I just said, "Would you would you be okay with me writing a full film guide to your films? You know, like a full the full works." And he said, "Oh, I'd be totally behind that." Yeah, I didn't expect to do any interviews for it. I just I thought we'd done our one interview and this was just going to be a guide. And then one day he said, "Oh, don't forget," he said, "I'm happy to do some interviews for this book because he said people had been asking him to do a memoir for years, but he wasn't really interested in the gossip stuff. And this was an opportunity to talk about the films. You know the." all the great films, he's been a part of. So I wrote, I'd say, I wrote around 200 pages of it just talking about the films. And then we arranged our first interview, and I think this is June or July last year. And I thought, maybe we'll do an, one interview. And four hours later, we were still talking. And he went, right, next. I you free next week? So it became a weekly thing for, I'd say, three or four months. Uh, and then it was a question of t- as, as I, I was typing it up as i went and i was working on other things a little bit, like music and uh, a couple of other books and stuff but it, my main focus was this book for a while and it was really fun because every week it was like i said i'd say to my partner and my daughter i'm just going to talk to james and it was kind of like a bit strange at first because we're like is this really happening and then it just became a part of the week and it would tell me when we discuss Salvador and Oliver Stone one week, and then we'd discuss more obscure films another week, and it was really interesting because he'd be talking about his craft like he'd never spoken about before. To him, he said it revealed things to him about the way he worked that he'd never really thought about because he was more of an intuitive, kind of spontaneous actor, not a method actor. So that's how it started. It just very organic and very natural, and then a lot of trust as well. So he liked... the questions I were asking and we, we developed kind of an easy way of talking and very friendly with each other. And He's just been a really nice guy to me. He's been really supportive. Out of the blue, some, you know, some guy from Yorkshire, England, starts talking to him and he's just, you know, he had no real reason to be so kind to me other than, other than just pure decency. So it's been, it was an amazing book to do. I mean, I can't imagine ever doing another book like this where I'm getting so many amazing stories and you know having such fun typing the interviews up and and then, then selecting which parts to use because I could have done a full we were joking about it at the time that we could have done like a 10 volume series like a reader's Di- Reader's digest 10 volumes full shelf but I managed to get it to like 400 pages but um yeah so that's how it happened it was completely out of nowhere like a lot of things that I do they're just one minute you know, I have a little thought and try it out and if it comes together like this has, which is a, it seems it seems like a miracle to me. I don't know how, quite know how it happened, but it's been an absolutely brilliant experience.
1: One of the things that I find interesting about him as a an actor is that he's been able to work with incredibly diverse group of directors and writers. When you think to yourself, he's made multiple films with Oliver Stone, he's worked with Scorsese, he's worked with Cronenberg, he's worked with John Carpenter, he's worked with uh, a lot of different people doing different things. So clearly, he's considered... Important to them because they use him like Oliver Stone, and even though in some of the movies he's perfectly willing to take roles that are basically very short. Yeah, I mean he certainly doesn't have a big role in Nixon, other than I mean he plays Haldeman, but Haldeman isn't a huge character in the film, Mm. and yet he's perfectly willing to take on the role. So he goes from being basically starring roles or or lead roles, better way of putting it. But then he seems also perfectly willing to take on smaller roles for a variety of reasons. Did he ever talk about why he had that desire to do different types of roles without having to worry about how many lines he had in a film?
0: Yeah, well, funny mentioning Nixon specifically is very interesting because uh, somebody else, Oliver Stone had somebody else in mind for Haldeman, And um, James Woods said, you know what? I said, I think... I could play Alderman. It's like no, Jim, you no, you're wrong. It's you're too much of a firebrand. You know we need somebody who's a bit more robotic. And, and uh, Woods was making a film called Killer: A Journal of Murder at the time, where he was playing um, Cal Panzram, the serial killer. And he had his head shaved and kind of, into a kind of severe cut. And he looked in the mirror and he thought, oh, I'm gonna look like Alderman. And he he got in touch with Oliver Stone, and said, right, I'm, I'm coming over. I want I want to do a, <laughs> I want to do a reading of Alderman. And Stone was saying, no, you're, no, you're not right. And he came over and he did some lines and he was like, Oh, right. He did some reading. And all Stone just knew that he had he had what it took to do it. So he, he really fought for us that role, even though it's a tiny role. So he, he does it for me, what he, what he said to me is that it's always the role. It doesn't matter if it's a a short role or say something like Virgin Suicides, where he's he's very mute, he, you know, he hardly says anything. He's kind of just is there, but he's not really present. For it's for him that was a challenge. So it's about it's like a proper actor, you know. He's a theatre actor originally, so he's a guy that really gets wrapped up in a character. And so I think, I think it's just the fact that big or small, um, kind of a psychopath or a, a gentle person or a sociopath, if the role's interesting, I think sincerely to him that it doesn't really matter if it's a leading role or not, because he's always like a film like Contact, which is um, quite was a big film in the nineties. Part of an ensemble there, and he's kind, he and a lot of it, he's kind of stood there with his arms folded. He's kind of the government guy in the plot, but it turns out that he actually has a vital. So, if anyone hasn't seen the film, he kind, of, he kind of reveals a plot point. He reveals the big plot point. So sometimes his role seems smaller, but um, ultimately it's got this, it's got this weight to it as well. And it's how he plays things, you know. Any given Sunday, for instance, the other Oliver Stone film very minimal part really he's the team he's the doctor of the team and um but he just <laughs> he just gives it fire and life and he adds a, he adds a lot of character to the film with his, and he's a lot of ad libs as well like Oliver Stone's said you know to me um there were a lot of ad libs and a lot of improvisation in Salvador it's like Salvador like you say goes from this starring role in Salvador amazing performance in the middle of this whirlwind of activity and then he can just turn up in another film where cameo as himself say like in be cool or uh, he can play the, the horrible father in a film like Pretty Persuasion, which is quite an obscure one. And then he'll do a you know a villain voice for say Stuart Little Two as the Falcon or Hercules. So it's just it, it's a remarkable career because it's so varied. And like you were saying, all the, the directors, so many different directors. But yeah, so I think with the role, like Casino, for instance, is a tiny role in the original script. I don't think Lester Diamond even has any lines in the original script but he really wanted to work with Scorsese. So Scorsese rang him and said, are you serious? Do you you know, Do you want to be in this film? And he said, yeah. He said, all I've got is the pimp, Lester Diamond. It's not really a, a big role. And he says, look, he says, any time, anywhere, any price, whatever, I'll do it. So he clearly is a guy who loves the work. And then he turned up and he expanded the role for ad-libs and improvisations and made what is a tiny sideline character like Lester Diamond into something that has become a little bit iconic and people always remember (laughs) James Woods in Casino as like this oh god yeah, the ultimate sleaze role but So, so sometimes I think that just because a role's small as well doesn't mean it's not rich and there's plenty of opportunities to kind of express yourself as an artist within that role
1: I think one of the other things that's interesting is many of his films, at the time they came, he made obviously big films, but then some of the other films he made either weren't very successful or weren't particularly regarded at first, but then over yeah. time they've become more and more well known and understood. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's not the same thing, but Once Upon a Time in America was, I can imagine what that was like afterwards, given that Leone lost Cut. he They came out with a shorter version at first that I actually saw in the theater and yeah. walked out saying, I don't get it. I just don't understand <laughs> what just happened, and yeah. it was many years until I got a chance to see. A number of years till we saw the full version in the states, and you can yeah, see yeah. the difference. And uh, so it's clear that uh, he made sure he got involved in
0: in really great projects. Yeah, it's true, and and like you said, they're not always um, set in the world like when they're first released. Like video drum, for instance, was very. Remember him saying to me that. It was fairly low budget film, and when it had been released, someone said, "Oh, said, there was no premiere type thing." So he said, oh, "I'll go along to see." This is in the book. He says, "I'll go along to see a, a, you know see it at the cinema, see what happens." And I said, "There's like a handful of people there," and you're like, "Oh," and it kind of sank. And then as the years went on, he said more and more people come up to him and say, "Oh, Video Drum, one of my favorite movies. Oh, Video Drum, fantastic film. I love you in Video Drum," and it and it took it got this kind of cult following over time, and um. You know, now it's like a prescient film because it's all about, you know... Cronenberg obviously didn't anticipate the internet, but it's a, it's about that kind of thing, you know, the escapes and being ruled, by devi- the, being ruled by devices and the merging of technology with flesh and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, he's, he's a part of a lot of films that that were not that... that kind of not sank but kind of just went floated by but then became cult. Like Once Upon a Time in America, for instance, like you say, the American cut was like savaged the the critics savaged it didn't they but in europe it was seen as a masterpiece because we they got the full three and a half hour cut but now i'd say some people say that once more time america's up there with the godfather for gangster films and maybe give it another 10 years that that might be seen as one of the ultimate i mean so to a lot of people it already is like to, to me i've always think it's just an amazing film but um yeah is it like john carpenter's vampires for instance it's there's not so many films that have got cult little cult followings, Virgin Suicides. But um, it's funny how some films just kind of get forgotten, and when you you discover them and you find them and you manage to track them down, you're like, oh my god, I don't know why people don't know about this one. This is this is a really good film. But that happens with all kinds of actors. It's just, I suppose it's down to marketing and if the film gets out there right. But yeah, it seems it seems to do a lot of these films that gain reverence over the years.
1: One of the things that he obviously can do, because he's done it a number of times, is play really intense people and often very bad people. Mm -hmm. Um, He first came to my view with The Onion Field, which, of course, oh, yeah. I saw when it first came out. I'd oh, wow. actually read the book already because yeah. Joseph Wamba was – I forgot the book now that he did first, and which is bad. I should remember it because it was a popular – it was a major crime issue. But anyway, he did The Onion yeah. Field, and I read The Onion Field first and then went to see it, and, you know, he just – and that was obviously one of his early, one of his earliest films. It was 1979, and yeah, he had done yeah. a little bit, and he'd done some television. But in 1979, he was basically a newbie or a yeah. you know a, a new actor on the on the screen, and yet he played a character who you just can't keep your eyes off of him, no matter how bad he
0: is as a, as yeah. you know as a killer. Yeah. I mean that is an amazing film. It's just I remember first seeing it. I mean it must have been amazing to see it in the cinema back in the day, but when I first watched that, I was like, oh my god, this is this is so disturbing. And um, I interviewed um, well Joseph Wamba did some some questions and answers for me for the book actually, and he said that he wasn't initially wanting woods for the park because he was going for you know a lookalike and Harold Becker, who I spoke to for the book as well. He said as soon as he saw James Wood, he said it was it was one of them moments where you go, Oh, wait a minute, geez, this is this is somebody. You know, he remembered it very vividly that this was somebody who was a special actor and he, we had they had to get him for the role. And I think it was bat's wife that said, Oh, come on, Joseph, you're crazy. This this guy's clearly the best for the job. And then he just got so into the role and it gave him a chance to explore sociopathic roles. Because before that, like you say, he'd done a lot of theatre. But in films, it were quite you know like The Way We Were and Gambler, you know little night moves, little bit parts on in films and some television. But this was like his chance to really show what he was capable of. And like you say, he's so horrible in it. But and he's a sociopath and he's a manipulator. But you can't not watch him. It's just he's got this quality in that film. It's all it's, He lost weight for the role as well. He said, and he had a lot of personal input to the role, like what he wore and things like that, like the, the little the little necktie thing he wears, the bowler thing, and. And he's got that kind of skeletal quality. That's what James was wanted. He wanted him to look, you know, sharp and jagged. And it's just one of the performances that I think it got him a, some a lot of nominations, like Golden Globe nominations. And that's the thing that really got him attention. And nowadays, I mean, that's a film, I don't know if people, even people my age will really generally know that film. In England, they don't. I had to get like, like a German edition of it to, to, on DVD to, to first see it, but... I think in America it's more it's more um, acclaimed, but that is an amazing performance. And I think I say in the book that it feels a bit like um, when you see Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate, and when you first see Nicholson in Easy Rider, and Robert De Niro in Mean Streets, when he when he puts the bomb in the post box. I think when you first see James Woods in this film, it's got that kind of magnitude about it. When he first comes in, you think, wait a minute, something's happening here that's that's unique, and this is. A, and then after that, I think that's when Woods really introduced that unique way of acting, that kind of intense, even when he's playing something that's not particularly intense, it feels intense because he's, he's got this urgency and this kind of exciting. I mean, he's, a, he's an actor that is exciting to watch, I find. So that's why doing this, doing this book was so much fun, because basically just getting to watch loads of amazing films. Some of I'd seen quite a lot of them, but then discovering some obscure ones and getting to talk to Woods all about them. So yeah, but the onion field. Yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about the onion field and it was an honor to, to talk to him about that and to talk to Harold Becker, the director. and Womba, who was a great writer. So I've got I've got the book as well and he did the new Centurions, didn't he? And um, uh, Choir Boys. Choir mm-hmm. Boys,
1: yeah. Right. Of course, yeah, he was probably one of the first that I can remember police. Yeah. You know, person who was actually a policeman who decided to change his career into a writer and, of course, used what he yeah. knew as his... Um, as his uh, methods for and So his his books are very realistic sounding. And, of course, some are fiction and some are nonfiction. But uh, obviously The Onion Field is a true story. And so in that particular case, uh, he made sure that uh, they obviously were looking for a a way to do it so that it uh, has truth to it or at least some sort of truth to it. So, of course, uh, it, it even features a very young Ted Danson. Who, yeah, yeah, yeah. who ends up being killed by James Woods so, in the yeah, film. Yeah. So um, anyway, so um, one of the things that's great about the book is that you were able to talk to not only Woods but other people. what And so let's move ahead a little bit to Salvador since obviously you talked to not only Oliver Stone for Salvador, for the discussion of Salvador, but also Jim Belushi. Yeah, yeah. What, what were these extra interviews you did? How did they add to your overall understanding or learning about Woods and, and, and his films?
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting because I never intended to do extra interviews. And then one day, one of us said, either me or, or Jimmy Woods, we said, oh, maybe some extra little bits might be interesting for this. You know, not too many, but just a few little voices of talking about the work and the collaboration. And one of the first that I did was Oliver Stone on the phone. And um, it would just. It, I, th- I think that if you're going to talk to anybody, and if you're doing through His work to Oliver Stone, and you're going to speak to other people, you have to speak to Oliver Stone because, in my mind, he's one of the most important filmmakers ever. You know, he's he's changed, he's influenced film so much more than people give him credit. Such a brave, brave uh, director and writer and visionary. And... So talking to him would just for me, it was important just to speak to him to get his take on. Salvador, because obviously him and um, him and Woods really collaborated closely on that one. And um, so it added a lot to the, I think it added, it wasn't just a case of like these celebrity bios, because it's not a celebrity bio, it's a proper film study book. <laughs> because a lot of them celebrity bios just like get kind of shallow anecdotes from people who knew them. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, it's fun and everything. But this was more like, I want to know what it was like working, you know. With Richard, you know, the guy that it was based on, Richard Boyle. So getting Stone to talk to me was really an honour as well. I just remember that I'd, I'd emailed the um, questions to him first, and so when we spoke, he had the list. So it wasn't—I was quite, quite nervous. But um, I don't know why I was nervous because he, he were not, he's not he's not going to bite my head off or anything. But I think it's because of that. It goes back to the days of the TV and video in my bedroom, taping Nixon and you know watching films like Platoon and. Scarface and but yeah, were really nice and he just like let's look at your questions. Oh, let's uh, oh yeah, look at the, oh, So he gave me some nice little information about the onset, uh relationships between Boyle, Richard Boyle, who James Woods was playing, and James Woods, and how how different they were from one another and they, <laughs> they kind of rubbed each other the wrong way. And he told me about him and Jim Balu, she's kind of friction they had at the start. Anyway, and the important thing was that there was there was friction, but it was all creative friction, and it was all for the greater good of the film. So everybody was, if they were having an argument, it was about the film. It wasn't about, you know, got the biggest trailer because James Wood said no one had trailers. They said you barely had a chair to sit on when you were making Salvador. So it were important to hear all the story. And then I liked the, the things that Jim Belushi provided as well because that brought some humor to it, and it kind of teases James Woods in in the um in the interview a little bit, you know, says, Oh, you know, he never, he never shuts up and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, it would be nice to get two different, because hearing it all from James Woods is really important. It's most important part of the book. You know, my opinions on the films will vary from someone else who reads it, but hearing what James Woods has got to say about the film is vital, but hearing extra little tidbits and little insights is also interesting. I found, so as a film geek, That's the thing. I was interested, so I thought, well, maybe other people might be interested. That's always my starting point. So you can't really go wrong talking to people like Oliver Stone and and James James Belushi. We took it all. We brought them to our land.
1: An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse we lost the our backs. we did not see we could not but she did and in the end
0: what will i become
1: senua saga hellblade 2 play it now with game pass so one of the things that i find interesting in looking through the lists of all, of all the work that he's done he seems like someone who never takes time off or at least didn't i mean i'm not saying recently he's obviously not working as much but i mean if you look through the dates on everything i mean it wasn't unusual for him to do three and four films a year of course some of them as we've already talked about were brief roles but it just seemed to him that it was more he just liked to work and and would take roles we talked about this already where it's smaller roles and then would take bigger roles but i mean uh, you could see just from looking at his uh, his roles that uh, it didn't bother him to just keep working.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, 1995 is one year in particular where there's five films released. He told me that he finished playing the serial killer in the film uh, Killer, A Journal of Murder, directed by a, a fellow called Tim Metcalfe, we interviewed for the book. It was produced by Oliver Stone, actually. And on the Friday, he, he got out of his costume playing a, you know, a, a guy who was on death row over the weekend, he flew to I think it was L.A. to film to start filming the TV movie Indictment, which was about the McMartin trial, which was also also produced by Albert Stone. So over the weekend, he's, he's having a costume change, and he's already into a totally different role, from playing a serial killer to a hotshot lawyer in a matter of days. I mean, with a click of a finger, basically. And he can't when you watch the the two films, he is every bit the killer in the Journal of Murder. He, he believes he's a killer. And then an in the Indictment, is is Danny Davis the lawyer? And you just think, Jesus, he's he's just... And now he's just the, the sharp, as a tack lawyer. So if you look at that one year alone, you've got Nixon, the Killer Journal of Murder, Casino, Indictment, and then there's a film called For Better or Worse, which is just an oddball little com- comedy made by Jason Alexander. So it's also the variety of films as well. You've got really serious stuff and intense stuff, and you've got a comedy. You've got a Martin Scorsese epic. So, I mean... If that's, if that's the work you were getting offered, no wonder he wanted to work so much because as an art, as a creative person, that's a lot of different areas to cover and different ways to express yourself as an artist. So yeah, I can see why, like and there's another year that's really good, 1999. You've got Any Given Sunday with Oliver Stone. You've got The General's Daughter where he plays a really interesting supporting role. You've got Clint Eastwood's True Crime, you know, starring alongside and being directed by Clint Eastwood. And then Virgin Suicides for Sophia Coppola as the dad. So I think any, any actor who loves working would get in offers like that. I think he'd have to you'd pounce on the chance, wouldn't he? So that's what's good. There's so many good opportunities that he seems to have grasped with both hands.
1: Did you talk to him at all about the, the the desire to continue to work? I mean, did he talk about the idea that he just didn't he liked working enough that he just would take? Now they're all you know, not that they're negative bad roles, but the size of some of them that he was just perfectly happy to continue to work.
0: Yeah, in, in the book, yeah, it, it says it says about we, we discussed the the um the drive of it because very early on when he was a young guy, he was at um co- uh, university college and. He started acting in, you know, university productions, and I think John Voight said to him, you know, he asked John Voight, he says, "Do you think I should give this up and become an actor? Because I just love acting. I love being able to, you know, put across the human condition and examine what it is to be human." And John Voight said, "Well, yeah, and do it. You've you've got the talent." And then he asked his mother, he said, "What are you okay with that, Mum?" And she said, "You know, if you're going to give it your all, do it. You know, you don't don't regret it, but." but never never not work your hardest. So the work ethic was there from from his mother. It's, just, it's at the end of the book, actually. Um, that was the driving force. that so She said to always put your all into it and, you know, mean what you're doing. So I think he always loved working. And, you know, these days, people kind of want to become well-known or well-paid from doing nothing. They kind of just want to be, exist and put themselves on TikTok and um, Instagram and just not really be a do anything of note but be paid millions of pounds and uh, dollars and be famous and uh, james will says to me at one point in the book he says my life would not make an interesting movie he says basically what happens is an actor works hard gets a little bit of recognition and rewards and that's it (laughs) he works hard and he gets rewards for it so that's basically what it is he's a work he was a working actor and he still is you know he's he's still i I don't think he's, he's done yet i think he might do some more but yeah I think it's just that that's like the same reason I do write books and I record music if you've got this urge to do things for some reason you know it you've got the feeling oh, I want to do this I want to do that it must be the similar kind of situation where it's, if you love what you do you want to do it more and when you're working with these directors I just think you just could not turn a lot of these offers down so it became work work was important but you can see why
1: one of the other things that I find interesting about his career, and you mentioned it with some of the work that we've already talked about, is his willingness to work for television at the same time that he was working in the films, because yeah. he was popular, you know, he became famous during a period of time where you didn't you know it wasn't something where you went back and forth a television actor stayed a television actor and yeah. and move and vice versa and yet even though he started early on with uh television with holocaust um He certainly did not mind if he, as you point out, it's the kind of thing where if he found the right role, the McMartin trial film is the other one that I can think of that he's perfectly willing or was perfectly willing to go back and
0: forth with uh, with television. Yeah. In in the book, he says about there's a film called Promise uh, from 1986, a TV movie and uh, he said to his agent you know I, I like this script is and, and the agent was like you crazy this is a tv movie you can you can't do this you know you do you, you're on the big screen and he says, no this I have to do this role and it was a um, a schizophrenic with uh, role with uh, James Garner and he won a golden globe and an emmy for it so he clearly he had no he had no problems with the tv script if it was a, if it was a part that you just cuz you had to grasp and really get a hold of and, and his performance in promise to say it's a TV movie, and people have this idea or they have this image of TV movies as being lesser for some reason, and that performance is staggering. If that was a a big screen film, it would have got an Oscar nomination, no problem. It was absolutely brilliant in that film. His name is Bill W. The Alcoholics Anonymous TV movie, and he won an s in 1989. So the TV that is that is done is all this, it's always as good as a as as good as a really good film. And then there's other things that are buried in the... There's one called The Guys that he did in 1991 with um, John Lithgow, which is about two writers, and one of them's a smoker and one of them's not. But the one who's not a smoker gets cancer, you know, passive smoking. And So they're always... They're not just TV things. They've got weight to them, and there's issues. Like he did one called Dirty Movies... Dirty Pictures, sorry. About the Maplefield pictures, and he's the gallery owner who gets in trouble because he exhibits these shocking well, what some people deem to be shocking pictures. And it's all about, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of thought. So there's always an issue. So if a film like Dirty Pictures happens to be made for TV, there's no reason not to do it just because it's TV. Cause see, I mean, look at now we're in, a, in another golden age of television. Now I think there's more things being made on television now that are, that are quality than than the cinema. So maybe he just always knew that if a script for TV was good; it was worth an actor's time.
1: And then, of course, there's also his work in animation, uh, yeah, including yeah. comedy. I mean, Family Guy is the <laughs> the most obvious example. But yeah. what what did he talk about when you know what what were the stories about relating to deciding that he wanted he was willing to do voice work?
0: Well, I think one of the first voice ones he did was The Simpsons, where he played himself as a guest role, and he said the script was so well done that there was no real room for ad-lib. And he just, you know, James Woods ends up working at a quickie mart and <laughs> he comes for the job interview and they say, what's your past work experience? And he's like, oh, the, the onion field, Salvador and uh, true believer. And they go, oh my God, it's James Woods. So it was for fun, really. Yeah, he said he had such fun doing it. And then he always wanted to do a Disney uh, part. He always said it was, every actor wants to do a Disney villain or a Disney hero. So when Hercules came along, he managed. He finally got the, after a few other actors, they came to this agreement that what he was doing as as Hades was better than what they'd written. So a lot of ad-libs come out of Hercules. So when he did that did that role, it was very liberating for him because he wasn't having to stick to a rigid script. He was he turned Hades into a, like a car salesman, kind of schmoozing, kind of sleazy. Hey, you know, it's Hades, lord of the underworld. So it it, it kind of had a, had so much fun within that realm of animation that I think he really realized then that. Like with Robin Williams in Aladdin, you, it's, it's it's sometimes even more liberating than than physical acting because you can afford to maybe ad lib a little bit more. Then the animators have to catch up with you, then they have to animate what you said. So he said that he, he, he took uh, animation roles as seriously as, if not more, in some cases because the the work he said the work that went into Hercules was was a, there was a lot of work, and then Family Guy, obviously, he said that. Um, his brother called him and said, "Have you watched that new program, Family Guy, yet?" And he says, "No." Why? He says, "Well, the high school's called James Woods High," and he's like, "That's that's, that's bizarre." I wonder why they've done they've done that because it's the most famous person from Rhode Island. And then he bumped into one of the uh, writers afterwards or producers. It's in, it's in the book, and they said, "Hey, what happened there?" He says, "I should sue you as a joke. You know, I should. Like I said, "I know. I won't sue you if you write me a, a great episode." You know, joking, not thinking they would. And then the script turns up and he's like, oh my God, this is amazing. And it's the famous, you know, piece of candy episode. So then he did a few, I think he did about eight appearances on Family Guy and he's done quite a lot of other things as well, like um, the Final Fantasy um, cartoon, which was quite ahead of its time with its animation. Yeah, so to me, he's he's just said that he really enjoys doing it and even video games. You know, he found, he did a few video games like Kingdom Hearts and um, Scarface and Grand Theft Auto. He said it's a different discipline but it's it's still it's an extension of of acting so it's i imagine it's hard work to to nail a role like he does with hercules but once he does a once he does a role you can't imagine anybody else doing it
1: so in your conversations with some of the directors including obvious, we've talked about the ones that, you know, a little bit, what do you, what, what were their comments as far as his way of doing his work? I mean, did they, obviously you get the impression he's obviously works hard, prepares a lot, but what kind of comments did they have about how Woods does his work?
0: Well, it was was interesting because they all say, you know, he's, but like the most professional actor you can you could hope for, he's just he, he knows you know he's on the he's on the ball nonstop. Like Harold Becker, basically it's a collaboration actually because if you a lot of these directors have said to me that you collaborate with him, it's and James Wood said to me he's an actor and he considers himself an actor and filmmaker, so it's not like right I'm going in my trailer, I'll come out and do my lines and I'll go back. You won't see me. He's very much part of this is what directors have said to me. He's very much part of it. Like the chap who. Who directed the killer film I keep mentioning it because it's a really I think it's a lost gem he was a writer a film writer Tim Metcalf and Tim Metcalf was a screenwriter and Oliver Stone said oh you should direct this because you've written the screenplay You like the auteur aspect of it and when he got there Tim Metcalf realized oh I don't really I'm not really 100% sure what I'm doing so James Woods clicked into like automatic mode right when I hope you put that camera there this, we need a shot over there we need this we need this so he can direct as well so that was an interesting thing to learn that in the heat of the moment in, in like this moment of panic where he didn't realize, Oh shit, I'm, I'm out of my depth. Woods like jumped in there and was kind of co-directed the film with him. And, and, you know, so, and obviously Oliver Stone says that he's a great collaborator because he's, his energy is so open. He's so enthusiastic and he's a great ad libber. And, you know, so it's all positive. It's like all these filmmakers. I know, it's, I don't know if I interviewed him for the book actually, but, a guy called ash baron cohen who's sasha baron cohen's brother he directed him in a film called this girl's life which is a really lost really good lost little film and um he said that he's a genius you know he's an acting genius and so all the directors love working with him Uh, there's such a wide range of directors as well which is that's interesting i mean there, there is some other directors that i would have liked to talk to but I just didn't want to ask too many people. I didn't want it to get too bogged down because I really wanted it to be a tribute to James Woods and for most of the book to be interviews with him. But all the directors have really interesting things to say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, straight talks like a fun little comedy film. And I just thought he talked very fondly of working with us. you know, he just said she's one of the well, probably the nicest person he's ever worked with. Just a great human being in every way. So I just I I thought oh, hey, maybe I should see if Dolly Parton wants to do maybe write a little paragraph you know from the book or whatever. Didn't expect to reply, but then she gave me this lovely, lovely couple of paragraphs that I used for the kind of the opening of the book. And I thought if you if you've got some stuff from Dolly Parton, you've got to start your book off with it, kind of because it's so positive and it gets the reader set up for what's what's ahead. And she like she says you know. Uh, I'm sure you all enjoy reading about his life in the movies. So it's just like like a surreal thing to get Dolly Parton in to write the. But then again, she is very, very fond of him. So and he says, you know, she's he's her favorite co-star from all her movies. So I shouldn't have been too surprised that she that she were going to get involved.
1: So looking at his work the the first question i wanted to ask related to his works as a whole what which films and i'm not going to make you just pick one which films do you feel like maybe aren't as well known but that you think are perfect examples of james wood's talent right um
0: let me have to think so there's there's some that are not too well known but um maybe not but some people film buffs will like there's a film called cop a really good film from the um James Elroy story, 1988 that's like if you want to see James Wood as a leading man kind of not an action star cuz it's it's not a conventional actiony type thing but it's a cop film and he's is you know he's the main guy so it that's like covers that area and there's another film called Immediate Family where him and um Glenn Close want to uh, adopt a baby from this girl who's having a, having a child and that's a very like nuanced, subtle performance. you know. He kind of just plays a completely ordinary guy who's a really nice guy, and that's an underrated film. And there's one called Split Image um, from 1982, where he plays, like, a deprogrammer. So this 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 guy gets kidnapped by a cult, and Brian Denner, he's the father, and he brings James Woods in to, um you know, deprogram him. And he has this amazing scene that was all improvised where he, bring, he tries to get him back from this dark. And that's a great film. That's a really underrated film um this there's a lot there's a lot of underrated like i said before this girl's life uh some people might not look like the whole film but his performance in that he plays um the father he's got parkinson's and it's a, just an amazing little performance within this forgotten film and you think god oh, that's just that's just one of the best pieces of acting i've ever seen and badly anyone seems to know about it so there's quite a lot i mean and when you say Kind of overlooked. It's difficult because I'm looking at the list and I'm thinking, well, I, you have to remember that not everybody knows everything that you that you've always known. So, uh, Fast Walking is a good film from 1982 where he plays a crooked prison guard, that, and he's the lead role in that. And it's that's a really fun kind of a romp kind of thing, really. But there's there's a lot. I mean, there's there's so many good stuff that kind of people don't really talk about anymore. And Bestseller is a really good film where he plays this hitman who gets in touch with a, a cop a, who also happens to be a novelist, a writer, like Joe Umbar, who played by Brian Dennehy, and he says, you know, I've got this amazing story, you should write You should write this story, and it becomes like this weird playoff, this relationship between Dennehy and Woods. But I don't know if they're underrated or not, but they seem, people in England don't seem to know them, so I'd say they're some of the really good underrated
1: ones yeah i I know it's tough to use the word underrated because or you know i guess what i'm thinking about is the ones that you mentioned that maybe people either don't even remember he was in them or don't remember or just ones that are worth making a special effort because like i say these days it's very easy to a large extent to at least find these even if you pay a little bit to get them either streaming or or dvd but uh yeah he definitely had a had a career, has a career that uh, has stretched during that period. So, oh yeah, and and um, what did you feel? I mean, this is a strange way. I mean, I don't know if it's a strange question or how did his participation change what your original plan was for the book?
0: Well, it it made the book like hundred times better because I, I've never written a book. About somebody where they've been the the an active participant. You know, I've written about films, and in, say an individual film, and somebody who was in that film kindly uh, took some time out to be interviewed. Or if say I've done a book about a director, some of the actors who worked with that director spoke to me, like Orson Wells and things like that. But uh, this was unbelievable because it was a retrospective about a, a a great actor that I've always admired, and he was a part of the project, so it changed it in. Just for as a personal thing, really, just like this is this is just so much fun, and he was such a such a nice guy to me. He was so it it'd been so giving and friendly to me that it just made it it made my work more positive as well. You know, like I've always loved my work. I love writing, and even if I'm stuck in a room on my own writing away or making music, it's always positive. But this was like, oh, this is great. I'm talking to, 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 to such a fantastic actor like this. And it didn't really affect, it didn't really change the way I write because I, I don't really write critical film writing. I kind of write about things I like. So I'm passing on my enthusiasm to other people, hopefully, who, who buy the books around the world. So it, it, it just changed it in that aspect, really, that you just don't know what can happen as well. If you just try, if you, or things can just naturally happen. Like, I didn't really plan for this. So it made me have this kind of... Wow, life is life can be pretty surprising and amazing when you just when you just when you do, I suppose it's when you do what you love to do and you stick to your integrity. There's a payoff payoff isn't always monetary. Payoff can be a positive experience like this and something that's just, just so I don't know. It's it's hard to put into words, but it's been really special and it kind of has affected affected me because it was so so someone to be so given in that way, who's so well known, was was also unexpected as well.
1: And also, I know in the film, in the book, excuse me, you present some some of the photos, but also there's a few other documents, or I don't know if you want to call them documents, mementos, things. Did Was that from him that you got them, or did you do any other outside research
0: to pull oh, together some of the material that you used? Him mean, his, his girlfriend sent me some pictures. But um, some of the more strange things I managed to find uh, from from emailing around. And some other filmmakers let me use some pictures for free as well. And I, and I obviously licensed some of the more well-known pictures. Like the documents were from people who'd bought them at auction. Like there's a, there's a playbills for theatre and there's, there's his old um, bio from when he was a young actor and stuff. So there was some... That were fun as well because as I were making it, I was obviously... I owned a lot of his films already, but I was buying... More films like old videos and uh foreign versions of DVDs that I couldn't get in England. So there was a lot of detective work when you do things like this. There always is when you are scouring around looking for things. So it was fun in that re- fun in that respect as well. Just as kind of like a, a film historian, you know, writing about things that you can hardly find any information about r- r- things from really early in his career. And yeah, so all that was fun
1: as well. I will say that interviewing. Writers, particularly if the uh, subject is either historical in nature, in this case, part of this is historical. It's mm-hmm. great to know nowadays that there is a lot of stuff out there that that are obtainable. Even though to do re- research on some topics, you still have to go out there, as yeah. particularly, unfortunately, you know, like in in Hollywood and where there's uh, libraries that are devoted to particular films and actors. But yeah. there's a lot of other materials out there that that can help build on things these days and it makes the research part of writing so much easier almost more difficult because sometimes there's so much and
0: having to go through it all and figure out what you want to use and what you don't want to use that's what that's what we're great about having James Woods involved because it's a little bit of film well quite a big slab of film history here because it goes way back to Ilya Kazan you know his first films of Ilya Kazan and you've got carol rice films in there and you've got you know sergio leone and so hearing the stories from the man himself is like having living history so in that respect it's it's, it's amazing as well because the, the main reason i didn't have to go to a lot of you know li- obscure libraries and stuff is because the guy himself was telling me these amazing stories so i'm so i'm so lucky to be to, to have been in that position it's, it's amazing
1: So, um, given that we've already figured out that you're very prolific, uh, I assume, I noticed that you've got, yeah, I don't know if it's out after this book, the one on Catherine Deneuve, but, uh, it sounds like, uh, you've got other things in the pipeline or that you're working on.
0: Yeah. I've always got projects on the go. Like, um, that one's been one that I've been coming back to quite a while because I did, I did a book on a a French actor called Michel Piccoli last year. and. I was lucky enough to interview Catherine Deneuve for that because she worked. I think she did eleven films with him, like Belle de Jour and things like that. And um, that was a surprise because she because I rang her one day and there were no answer for. Oh, it's not going to happen. And I can't remember. I must have given my number and she she rang the house, uh, but I didn't expect her to ring. <laughs> so I'm like, hello, it's Catherine. Kind of, hello, this is Catherine Deneuve? So I, she's my favorite actress of all time. So I've been doing this little study of her work for a while, and I just put this little book together just. Um, it looks at, like, not not every film, but quite, I'd say, around 70-odd films or something, maybe 80 films that I've watched over the last few years that I really love. She's she's given so many amazing performances. I've just done a book, a little mini-book, of two film essays with it, um about two films called Smoke and Blue in the Face, which was written by the, the New York author, um, Paul Oster, and Wayne Wang, the director. and Unexpectedly, Paul Oster... Was open to me. I, I interviewed him for the book, and he kindly said, "Oh, if there's any um any problems, uh, send me send me the uh, what you've written, and I'll I'll go over some and the facts for you and make sure everything's correct." And we ended up, he ended up going over his interview again and sharpening what he'd said on his on his legendary typewriter. And he was he was so helpful and nice to me. And um, he's just I've just sent him a copy of the book, and he's he got it yesterday, and he, he really loves it. So that's he's my favorite novelist of all time. So it just seems to be all these great things are coming together at, at once because I don't know why, but um, it's just working out and I'm, I'm still making my music that I love to do and I've got some more book projects and I just interviewed another one of my favorite actors a couple of weeks back, Stacy Keach, for um, the the cult magazine I do, and uh, now I'm putting together like a book about his films now because I asked him if he minded and he says no, don't mind, that's a good idea, so I'm doing like a little study of his work now, I'm watching all his films while. Time with other projects so yeah i've got i've got plenty plenty to do over the next few years definitely well it's great that
1: these actors who are still around but who have roles that aren't always the lead but often usually very important to a film yeah. uh, that you continue to be able to not only write about them but actually have contact with them because it's important to fill in these stories
0: oh yeah that's what it is for me i think it's as a film fan, you can watch a film and enjoy a fan and go carry on with your day. But as a film fan, and it was a bit obsessive as well, and thinks, God, if I, I'd love to speak to them. They're still around. They're such an important person. I wonder if they'd speak to me. And Then they do, and then you get on, and then you, it leads to other projects, and it's just it's kind of snowballs into. I suppose it's it's if you try and, you know hold your hand out to somebody and say, Oh, would you would you like to do this? Would you and they say, Yeah, you're lucky enough to, to say yeah. You are capturing the history there. And I think I think it's really, really important. And then to say someone one day just says down down the line, Oh, ooh, that guy, that actor, you know, 50 years from now, they might go, Oh, there's a book there with all about all these films. That's that's what I always think about. Like I look on the internet and I see someone go, Oh, I've just seen someone's written a book about the Italian director, Torres Scola. <laughs> which I did a few years ago, which is, I can't imagine he's got many fans in England. He's popular and he's dead now, but he was popular in Italy. But I've seen on little forums, and oh, someone's written a book in English about a Torres Scola, because I wanted to read one on his films, and there weren't any out there. So sometimes that's the, my motivation is, I'd like to read that, but there's nothing there. So I get obsessive and I spend a couple of months researching the films and interviewing cast members. and It's always just what I want to do, and I think that sometimes you are getting important things down. Um, you know, things that might otherwise might not get put in print, like Sharon Stones in the in the James Woods book, because she kindly, uh, gave me some insights into working with him and the friendship they've got, and I've never seen that in anything. I've never seen her talking about working with James Woods. So it's all just getting this stuff together, and in, and and I'm. I mean, I, am, I do a blog that's got samples of books, but I'm not really a blogger or a vlogger type. But for me, it's like having a physical book with all the facts in it. And the. the I like holding the book myself. So if I like doing it, I just hope that other people then want to, you know, seek it out and, do the same
1: well I had a great time talking to you about this book like I say you, you've brought out a lot of information about uh, James woods and some of which and a lot of which probably you know listeners may not know as much about or don't remember because of all the varied roles he's done so I appreciate your time and I hope the book is doing well and well, thank, you. Uh, thank you for all your insights about your experiences writing the films of James woods
0: no oh, thanks for having me it's been fun
1: My great thanks to Chris Wade for joining me. I hope that his book will give you a greater appreciation of James Woods. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.